Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Today's Warner Archive Collection podcast tells you that seven is your lucky number because we have seven exciting new releases for the first time on DVD, and the first three feature the king of Hollywood and the blonde bombshell herself, Clark Gable and Gene Harlow together in the first three films they made together at MGM, coming to DVD for the very first time. Guys, let's talk about Gable and Harlow. In total, was six films they made six together? Six films total, including so th- her, so that, her last. That her makes it a, a king bombshell. That's right. A king bombshell sextet. <laughs> and uh, what folks probably do know or do not know is that they both came up together. They're both new actors in the first of our films, Secret Six. Gene Harlow, new actor, but already a superstar, but she was still learning her craft. And Gable was the new kid on the block at that time, uh, sort of rising up and taking a lot of the roles that had formerly gone to John Mac Brown. That's right, because this was really Wallace Beery's film, right? And John Mac Brown was also in it, and Gable and Harlow were were lesser, the lesser lights. There's a quote where uh, Harlow talks about making this film, and she said, like, after every take, she would turn to Gable and say, how am I doing? And he would say, I don't know, how am I doing? And through this process, the two of them actually became very, very, very close friends. And their comfort and ease with one another is really evident in the next two films. But let's talk a little bit about Secret Six. And let's talk about the fact that the Secret Six not only has Wallace Beery, but also Louis Stone. Mm -hmm. Ralph Bellamy. Ralph Bellamy. Who's marvelous. You know, if you only know Ralph Bellamy from Disorderlies. Wait till you see him play This is a whole new old Ralph Bellamy. (laughs) This is a a MGM gangster film. This is the awful truth about Ralph Bellamy. He had an MGM past. That's the truth. But if you only know him. for, For me, his greatest performance, and I'm not joking about this, Trading Places, brilliant film. Yeah. Not our film, still a brilliant film, even if we don't own it. But Ralph Bellamy has a fairly pivotal role in The Secret Very much so. And yet, you come away from The Secret Six thinking about Harlow and Gable, I think, Uh, along with Wallace Beery, obviously, has a... And and the look is really really quite a treat seeing Louis Stone not play a nice man. Not nice, yeah. (laughs) Now, I just have a big question. If this is a gangster film, who are the secret six? And, and why was, do they look that way? That was sort of my question for George, if he knew, because I've only just started looking into it. Now, now this idea of this secret cabal of businessmen, is it any way based on real-life Chicago stuff? Does anyone know? This I know nothing of. I only know I, of the production of the film. Yeah. Well, let's just say a little past halfway the Secret Six, which are six businessmen in masks. Now, these, by the but way, they're do-gooders too. They are. Yeah, they're, they're do-gooders. They're doing right. good. But they're but they are masks. And if men. I was like, a reporter, they're like a Justice League of their era. If, if I was a reporter it. and I was called into a room to have six businessmen tell me what significant public figure to take down, oh, I would so not question that case. Well, my theory, and this is a working theory is that the Secret Six eventually went on to lead the Snorks. 
<laughs> because the snorks it's a very similar setup <laughs> yeah they're also uh, ruled by a cabal now th- how we would get from Harlow to Gable to the snorks could only be part of the Warner Archive collection mentality but that's what makes us so different and vibrant as we as we explore the the various sectors of yeah. our library now, now, are, are you talking about my brain <laughs> well uh, how would you I mean it's so very interesting to see the MGM crime film as opposed to the classic Warner Brothers crime and, films. And crime was definitely not the MGM genre, although they did explore a little bit of it at the time. And a Harlow appearance a little bit thereafter, which is also part of Warner Archive, Beast of the City with Walter Houston is also a crime expose. But the interesting thing is that a week after The Secret Six was released, Harlow appeared in Public Enemy. Ah. The Public Enemy with James yes. Cagney, which was, I think, her only Warner Brothers appearance, or at least only Warner Brothers starring appearance. But the fact that the films were released within a week of each other, I don't know which was filmed first. But this, one, I'm sure, the know, Harlow biographers out there know. Yeah. But I do and not. are gnashing their teeth at our ignorance. Say, how could they not know that? Well, when you compare the two crime stories, you know, one is, you know, the Public sort Enemy of, is amazing like the crime story, right? Uh, from this time and this one uh, you know it, Wallace Beery's rise through the ranks follows like in and then but then his fall that's the twist like Warner Brothers a Warner Brothers uh, version wouldn't have really focused so much on the secret six and the reporters trying to bring him down because the criminal would his hubris would have brought himself well, the, down. yeah we just our focus would have stayed with the anti-hero and not sort of bring in these forces of society setting things right. Yeah, and Public Enemy so much more progressive in the genre even than Little Caesar, which was really the benchmark that created it. And, and this is not meant to be a diss on the gem of a studio that was MGM, but uh, their crime pick is remarkably not very ethnic. No. <laughs> Louis Beamer had a sensibility that he brought to his films. Jack Warner had a sensibility that he brought to his films. Generally, the Warner films of the 30s have much more of a vitality and a vibrance and a relatability to a contemporary audience that can still be shocking, whereas, and this is not as a, meant as a negative about the MGM films, but they don't have as much of a contemporary relatability where you look at them as more dated in terms of the storytelling, and I think the Secret Six and the masks, the, the masks, guys wear, yeah. Well, that's that, that, that's, that's an interesting truck or fine dining. Uh, but, but it's it's an interesting film, and it does pop not in the crime film part, but really in the the Gable Harlow relationship is what stands above the film, and then that is that uh, relationship in different permutations is what's explored in the next two films. And to the fans out there who love Harlow. These are the three Harlow films that a year ago, when we were celebrating her 100th birthday, we were unable to release. Yeah. Thanks to literally the tireless efforts of the fine workers at the Motion Picture Imaging Group, we can now bring them to you. And that's the exciting story behind this trio. And your eyes will pop. They really look good. Because the original materials are non-existent or beyond existence, right? The the existing (laughs) film elements we have were extraordinarily worn and so Warner Brothers Motion Picture Imaging had a lot of 
had their work cut out for them and it took this long to get them to the point where we could make them available and really looking uh, better than they've looked in a very long time and the original film elements on two of these films no longer exist in any form so this is the earliest material there is some material extent on the secret six which uh, is at George Eastman House, but Red Dust and Hold Your Man uh, perished in, in the fire, and what we have are the most surviving original elements, and uh, overall, they've done, I think, a great job with all three films. Ah, that means that we're going on to Red Dust from 1932. One of, I would say, Gene Harlow's most emblematic film, certainly one that people tirelessly request, speaking of tireless efforts. And this is... Uh, <laughs> One of one of Victor Fleming's earliest films directing at MGM. He had done The Wet Parade before this, but this was very early in his career as director Th- at MGM. This one was pretty wet, too. You've got Gene Harlow and Mary Astor in a love triangle with Clark Gable without mustache. No, sans, all sans mustache. Actually, we should tell the truth. We did not feel comfortable releasing three Gable films without mustache right. when we already had released all the Gable films with mustache. Yeah, so these are the not mustache. This is the mustache. We're now compiling the Sans stash. This collection. is the Sans stash stash of films. We've bared our souls here to tell the truth about the mustache. Peccadillo. That was our marketing hook. Does this mustache make my ears look big? So Red Dust takes place in Indochina. Indochina. I think that would be appropriate to call it, right? Right, because people come up from the Saigon. And they say, Saigon. Saigon. Which is like, I never heard Saigon referred Uh, to as Saigon. And you know, because when I was watching this, I was like, what? This film, (laughs) they make references to Saigon, and we figured out that was Saigon, and in fact, it is what was then French-occupied Indochina. Yes. And also wh- the setting of uh, East Disease, available from the Warner Archive Collection, a fine Lon Chaney senior Now, film. Dan, tell us what other Warner Archive Collection title may be reminiscent in a future way. Red Dust was written by uh, Wilson Collison, who is also the author of the story upon which the second Maisie film, Congo Maisie, is based on. And Congo Maisie is often erroneously referred to as a remake of Red Dust, but it isn't. It's a separate story, but there are very similar beats and a similar story. Let, let me just point out that this was a rubber plantation. Yes. And I loved Clark Gable going and cutting into the tree and uh, drinking, drinking the rubber. Drinking the rubber and That's, spitting it out because it was no good. That was his quality control. Yep. He knew that he had some good rubber he when could he could taste the bounce. Harlow's next film for the studio was in fact, with Gable again, Hold Your Man, released in 1933 with what I consider to be a terrific screenplay by Anita Luce. I love this one. I'm I'm going to... It has one of the best meat cutes you will ever see. And also it has one of the best... Now, this was a a pre-code film where they danced around so many subjects so obviously that I think that if this was 1934, I don't even know if this movie, it would be a very different movie. This movie could not have been made no. after a certain point in no. 1934 once the code came in because it dealt with an unwed mother. Yes. And well, a pregnant mother, which a th- pregnant was a word they mother. could not say. Right. It almost was like they were winking at the audience and not saying it. I was really impressed with the way they dealt with the subject matter in a straightforward fashion. And the film drifts between comedy and drama in a kind of unique way because the comedy is very funny, and yet there are also some very serious moments to it. 
Uh, I think uh, Harlow and Gable are terrific. The first good scene with the both of them is that uh, Gable's character has just performed a street con and he's hiding from the police and runs into her unlocked apartment, into Harlow's unlocked apartment, and uh, pleads with her to hide him. And he hides in her bathroom. And uh, the police come in and she says, the only person here is my husband. She protects him. They open the door and there's Gable in the tub, fully sudsed up. And doing a high voice and being very funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great... It's, it's actually one of the, the times you see him being comedic again early in his career and um, but, but I, I you get the it happened one night Gable right, in this one right. yeah. and, and you see why the characters fall for each other they have a natural chemistry that sustains their relationship which becomes very strained one thing about this film and Red Dust in their DVD debut through Warner Archive is both of them contain the original release trailers En Espanol. These trailers sí. are texted in Spanish because the original English trailers no longer survived and the only trailers we could find, they haven't been seen in decades, are these trailers that have Spanish text. And I found it interesting. I do not speak Spanish. I could tell exactly what each <laughs> of the text cards meant because they were so blatant. And one of the things that Hold Your Man's trailer makes a big deal about is the title song. Hold Your Man, and they even, you know, have a clip, because all the clips in the trailers are in English language, and there's no uh, dubbing or subtitles over them, but the intertitles are what are in Spanish, but the Hold Your Man, the studio was clearly trying to make a hit song out of it, and both characters refer to it during the film as it's their favorite, favorite song, <laughs> uh, and it was written by MGM's in-house crack songwriting team of Arthur Freed and Nacio Herb Brown. But unlike... Maisie and Southern, Jean, Jean Harlow, Harlow was not a singer. So she sang, uh, she she spoke, Rex Harrison did. She spoke part of the lyrics, and, and then, then someone else comes in to hum and 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 sing along with her. As was the case in Reckless, she did some of the singing, and then I prefer scatting. Else. Yeah, well, she was she was up there with with the great jazz singers of the time, <laughs> long before it became popular. But she's sort of a vocalist, John Cage, I thought. Yeah, a, a little bit. You could you could stretch that. Another little uh, plot turn here that I just want to mention is that you know it's Gable's character is a bit of a playboy. She kind of tries to grab her man, but then uh, there's like kind of mi at the midpoint, uh, the film shifts. Yes, uh, the the tone shifts very much. And right after she gets her man and starts holding him a little too close, she winds up at the reformatory. Jail. A, a home for wayward girls. <laughs> she was in jail. Yeah, it was a jail, but it was girls' jail. And, you know, what's interesting is, is that neither one of them, in fact, had committed any crime. They were <laughs> wrongly accused, and fear was riding the choices of the characters, and will not spoil too yeah, much more of the it. plot. But it does allow for some MGM impressions of Ladies in Prison as opposed yes. to the Warner version of Ladies in Prison that we saw in Ladies They Talk About. These ladies took a few swings. And some of the same ladies are in both films. Well, you know what? When you, when you cast, they're, they're like, were you in that other one? Absolutely. And I think fans of, of both Harlow and Gable will be delighted that they've finally come to DVD. I just wanted to share this quote I just found about uh, Hold Your Band and her singing. Gina Harlow said, 
They have me singing in a reformatory. My singing would be enough to get me in, but I'd never be able to sing my way out. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't sing her way out. Well, she had a great sense of humor about herself in her very short life. She made quite an impression on people, which is why so many years after her passing, uh, she's so beloved and so well-remembered. So let's go from a king of Hollywood and the blonde bombshell to a king of television who's a great friend to the Warner Archive as we celebrate the release of season four of one of the great Warner Brothers television series, really the first hit Warner Brothers television series, Cheyenne. Uh, one could even say the first real hit drama series. Absolutely. And we, we had the uh, pleasure of seeing Clint Walker himself now at age 85, I believe, at the Paley Center a few weeks ago. We showed an episode of Cheyenne, and we got to hear his uh, firsthand impressions. I was very impressed. And he really is a, a gentleman beyond description. You can also uh, look in iTunes and find our podcast where we all uh, had a, an interview with Clint Walker a while back when we released season three of Cheyenne. But now season four has finally come to DVD with all 13 episodes intact and a wonderful range of storytelling that shows the real attention to detail. Uh, we were all discussing this uh, earlier and came to the conclusion that these are almost like mini movies. What a great thing it was that they worked out this 13 I was season, just gonna 13 say episode that. season because the writing is is very, very strong, and it also, of course, freed Clint up to do some really fine motion picture if work. If you think about today with the series that yeah, are yeah, so right. highly lauded. Ahead of its time, Cheyenne. Uh, the great series that are done in limited number for cable television, uh, some for our sister company, HBO. There are usually 13 episodes. Clint Walker was way ahead of them in thinking that. These felt adult, you know, like, because uh, getting into the, you know, I, I know we had this discussion, and I... I'm a little, I'm a little younger than a few of these guys. What? But, but my impression of older TV was that it was a little sillier, a little more basic. And I'm these, still in high school. That well, yes, I know. You got to finish that up, Dan. I know. Uh, Sorry, I'm really old, and they're young, but we're going to make it work. Anyway. Yeah, it's so. going to be beautiful. But my point is because they were chastising me for saying this earlier. But this was an adult series. This isn't a silly western. This is, and and I felt in this season, and watching some of the other seasons, it had really matured. Like. You know, Clint Walker comes in to set things right. You sound crazy. Uh, like you know, and I watched like four or five of these right in a row, which is the way you are supposed to watch DVDs. That's the way they the watched way. them in the 50s. Yeah, of right course. in a row. No, no commercial not, break. Not once a month. Four and in a row. I decided that I really needed to completely uh, rearrange my outlook in life. I needed to be more of a secret justice seeker. I have to mention that Adam West guest stars in this season, as does, for fans of Godzilla, Rhodes Reason. Mm. Some other guest stars to keep an eye out for, uh, Lauren Green, Connie Stevens, Whit Pistol, and uh, George Kennedy. This one was a lot of fun. This is still, you know, now Cheyenne was never in color, right? This Cheyenne was in black and white, and as was most television in that era, unless you were on NBC. But if you are watching Cheyenne in black and white and want to know how good Clint looks in color, you're encouraged to check out his Western trilogy available from the Warner Archive collection, Fort Dobbs, Yellowstone Kelly, and Gold of the Seven Saints. Did he make any of those in this in this year? 
Um, uh, of the fourth season? Those movies were made around, I believe, the fourth and the fifth season. This is the period when he was making those films. Actually, Yellowstone Kelly is in color. Fort Dobbs is in black right. and white. But Yellowstone Kelly um, and Fort Dobbs were among the first titles we remastered yeah. when we started doing our remastering in 2010 because of the popularity of Clint Walker and fan requests. Yes. And because of the popularity of Clint Walker and fan requests, we are continuing to excavate our vaults for more Clint Walker properties, and that's why we have two new yeah, feature we, films. We got two more. Shortly after he wrapped his long, triumphant run in Cheyenne, Clint Walker made our next film, 1965's Maya. Now, if you could cast an animal to be as big and as honorable as Clint Walker, I would choose an elephant. I would choose Maya. Yeah. I, I, now, I don't want to... <laughs> do any spoiler I uh, do but I'm just gonna say I could have used a f- little heads up I did from not, my colleague I did not spoil film. anything no uh, I told and you. I'm just gonna say there's a reason I really like Goodbye My Lady uh, and, Maya is an awesome movie and it inspired yeah, awesome a television series that starred uh, the second star Clint Walker plays the father of Jay Dennis the Menace North in this film But after the film uh, was released about a year and a half, two years later, NBC tried to have a Maya television series in association with MGM TV that only lasted a half season. But the film had made enough of an impression that MGM decided to try. It's a great, great adventure film. Jay North plays a young half-orphan. His mother has died and he's sent by his grandparents to live with his father, who he's never met, who's the the super big game hunter of all the world. But who's suffering because he went nose to nose yes. with a tiger and he, he lost it. He couldn't do it anymore. Lost his nerve. He lost his nerve. And so he turns his back on his father. His father is a coward. After a traumatic event, the young son runs off into the jungle where he shortly becomes friends with a young local played by a young actor named Sajid Khan who's really, really great and not really credited on the No, no. and Sajid Khan and Jay North ended up in the television series together. And it's it's very if you're a parent. fan of Johnny Quest, you're gonna love this movie. Yeah. It's almost like Yes, it's I was like it was, yes, yeah. I was like it's Haji and, and Johnny. Maya is um, um the mother elephant and then there's a baby white elephant, which sacred is sacred right, white elephant. Yeah, sacred white elephant. Kawaii City. And yeah. they both ha- they have to take the sacred elephant to a temple. Yes, the boys fall into a quest and they have to transport the elephant safely to a temple. And everybody wants a piece of the white elephant. It's very valuable, very symbolic. Meanwhile, of course, Great White Super Hunter is desperately in search of his son. Yes. There is an elephant versus tiger battle. That is is, spectacular. Yeah, it's worth the price of admission alone. If you want to see tigers and elephants fight, this is it. This is the movie. This was not a film that was easily viewable by kids after the initial release and uh, we're happy that home video makes it possible for people to be able to see these kinds of films this film and it's 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 not not, it's not like kids films today well i would also say it's not for younger children i'd say it's you know probably for 10 or 12 because it deals with some disturbing sad issues that are okay for older kids but it's not a children's movie dan did cry i cry easily (laughs) 
following a lot of very significant film work in the 60s, like uh, Numb But the Brave and Dirty Dozen, Clint returned to television in the 70s for a series of television movies and Kodiak, which was a brief television series. And one of these TV movies is the remarkable live-action Hanna-Barbera Western pilot, Hard Case. And this has been almost impossible to see. And it co-stars Clint Walker with another of our favorites from Order Archive Collection. Alex Karras? Yes. And <laughs> Mongo. Ste- <laughs> and Stephanie Powers with the best 70s head of hair in the Western ever. Yeah. Now, uh, 1870s, right? Yeah, 1870s. <laughs> One of the things is perfect. Uh, Clint Walker plays a soldier who was taken prisoner in the war in the Philippines. He returns home to discover his wife has sold his ranch and run off with a Mexican revolutionary. Yes, sir. And goes down to find her. Now, this is another uh, Western that we're covering that takes place during the uh, the war in Mexico, uh, you know, in the late teens of the um, last I, century. I think the genre is called something like a Mexigetti Western. A Mexigetti? Yeah. This looked like it was shot in it, Mexico. Yeah, it, I mean, this or, was or in, in Spain. Southwest U.S. But I just wanted to comment, there's a very emotional scene early on in the film when Clint is first catches up to his wife, Stephanie Powers, where you very quickly see his skills as an actor. The dramatic... Very deeply moving scene. The dramatic core here carries the whole film. Although he is definitely a hard case. Yeah, he is a hard case. He does tie a a necklace of thorns around his neck to stop himself from falling asleep. He doesn't want to fall asleep because he goes down south of the border because his wife is remarried and he wants his price. He wants something from the the man who took his wife and that is well he d- wasn't going to get his wife but he wanted five thousand dollars from the ranch and uh, alex Karras plays a mercenary from massachusetts because he has glasses because that's yeah. the only massachusetts touch to his character but alex Karras and, and calvary uh, pants uh, yeah and i thought the alex Karras character and performance were really terrific. This is probably one of his I think it's his first film. Because because when was Paper Lion made? 69. Yeah, this is 71. They were, yeah, I would, I'm not going to go on record, but I have a feeling this is his first acting job. And he, of course, went on to do many great parts, including Warner Archive's own Victor Victoria, but I will, he will forever be Mongo in my heart. (laughs) (laughs) But these four roles, uh, you know, they're just out in the desert and it's the four of them, and they each have uh, a different motivation, a different and conflicting goal, and they just play off each other. And Hard Case, you <laughs> really feel that there's a little bit of Cheyenne in his character yeah, in this film. Yeah, a little film. bit. The yeah. dignity, mm-hmm. the but, intensity, and the integrity. But if it's like if Cheyenne got burned, right. yeah. he is a damaged no, it, man. It's He's Cheyenne angry. in the post-Eastwood era. Right. And that's what keeps you watching, because he has morality in, in him, but he feels that he's been so wrong that he's going to take what's his now, at whatever cost. Now, this this was intended as a pilot for a TV series. Uh, Matt and I have been having uh, <laughs> what some people call arguments. We just call them spirited discussions. Oh, I yes. believe that it was a setup in order to then – because the, the key thing is – I don't want to spoil something. Yeah, we have to spoil the ending. We have to spoil the ending. So I'm just going to say the hard case doesn't get something he wants. And I would say the series would then pick up with he and the Alex Karras character in San Francisco attempting to get that thing. I think he joins a rock band and goes outer space. Oh, that's next. (laughs) That's funny because 
I thought it was he was going to uh, join the medical corps and go to uh, South Korea in the war. It's a Hanna Barbera production. He's got to form a rock band and go into <laughs> outer space or underwater. You're right, or underwater. Yeah, underwater. Right. But, uh, it was one of their rare forays into live action production, and uh, therefore has been like our release of The Gathering or Man from Atlantis. Part of the Hanna Barbera Library, Bell Star with Elizabeth Montgomery. A lot of the live action uh, films that Hanna Barbera made have been hard to see, and we're here to provide you with those rare and hard to find releases. It's just fun to see the words Hanna Barbera over the desert in the Rosewood Old West font. Very much like Bell Star. Yeah, and and when I saw it, because I didn't know, you know, I just sort of put this one in blind, and I went, Ooh! Well, lots of fans of Clint Walker have been asking us to release Hard Case for a very long time, and we're delighted to be able to finally bring it to DVD. And you really want to see Maya, too, Clint Walker fans. But if you want to see Clint Walker and a lot of other (laughs) Hollywood luminaries, the next film... Shall we play Can You Guess the Film? The next film... Well, we already know the answer. I know, we know, but people out there can be shouting at their computers as we list off some of the people who appear in this Okay, so let's just name some, and I will start with Butterfly McQueen. Jay Silverheels. A computer. Colonel Sanders. Colonel Harlan Sanders, to be exact. Ed Sullivan. Rock music. Dick Clark. Joan Blondell. Oh boy, what a plot. James Brown. Leo Gorsi. I <laughs> Come on, come I, on, keep all going. Right. All right, keep going. See, because I lose Harold, track. I'll give you one. Harold Oddjob Sakata. <laughs> Hans Hall. <laughs> I, you know, it was, uh, let me put it Richard this way. Richard Pryor. This is a... Me- a very famous boxer. Yeah, I, okay. Joe okay. Lewis. Okay, there, there were quite Xavier a few Xavier Kugat. R- Ruby Keeler. Patty Hey, he came up with Ruby Keeler. I got one. See, was oh there. Oh my God. The Lone Ranger. Busby Berkeley. Let me just point out that this was a mad, 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 mad cast. This is not, it's a mad, 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 mad world. No, I said it was a cast. Aha. Uh-huh. Dick Clark. Ed Sullivan. Rudy Valley. Um, Charlie were... McCarthy and Edgar Bergen. Guy Lombardo. Johnny Weissmuller no. and Maureen O'Sullivan. Yeah. Together. Again. And Clint Walker. Oh, what movie we... is it? It is a Warner Brothers production called The Finks. Let me just spell say. P-H-Y-N-X. Yeah. That's P-H-Y-N-X. Pronounced is... F-I-N-K-S. So what is The Finks? A riddle. Wrapped inside an enigma. A four-chord progression. And what is mother? <laughs> well, mother was... Uh, the- M-O-T-H-A. Mother. I feel that uh, mother really was... Because um, this was... Uh, the Finks was 1970. And obviously, Hal had had his big uh, debut as a computer in 2001. They needed to cast him in a follow-up, and that was the celebrity uh, star. And how did he get this job? So they got (laughs) somebody else. I think how played mother. It's very possible. That wasn't that's a computer. (laughs) Um, This movie is insane, and I think that tell people the setup, Matthew, because you are the plot lover. First of all, this movie, uh, very few people have actually seen it. It's it's more legendary than it is actually spoken about in whispers, seldom seen. The Finks. It's a comedy, a, mu- a rock and roll musical comedy about uh, a group of super spies formed by the government. Uh, they created a pop group to get them into the apparently impossible to break into because there's a very tall medieval wall, Albania, in order to rescue the world's... Uh, Albania, much like North Korea, has yes. been mysteriously kidnapping 
North American celebrities. Yes. Including others that we haven't mentioned yet, like Dorothy L'Amour. <laughs> and they're all really there. And Martha so Ray. The super secret agency okay. takes Look, advice from a computer daily. and creates a pop group a la the monkey. The, the computer creates The computer it. picks the members. The computer picks they, it. They are quickly trained in both combat and rock and roll. Yes. And then, then are sent out to be recruited to play a concert in Albania. Well, they, they first have to be uh, invited yes, to Albania, yes. like you know, uh, you know, like let's their say, first album sells 17 million copies thanks right. to the secret songwriting work of Lieber and Stoller, and, who are and, indeed credited. And, and the government, the U.S. government, which goes and buys copies of the records in order to pop them up the charts. There's a lot of it's distrust. like if they made Top Secret 20 years earlier and took a lot of hallucinogens. Now this and, film was and, reviewed in Box Office Magazine as I'm paraphrasing slightly here but the zaniest musical comedy of the year. And I said this to Matt, and Matt made the very good point. What other zany musical comedies were released in 1970? He said, as opposed to what, MASH? <laughs> it, was, it, was a little, it was a dry year. Now, this film, uh, we also should mention Pat O'Brien, Marilyn Maxwell. You could probably now, spend two more years mentioning all the celebrities that appear in this film. And, and they appeared as themselves, but... Clint Walker did not appear. Clint Walker, yeah. All these no, celebrities he is, playing he is introduced himself. as himself, but they say... Oh, that's right. right. He was himself. They say, right. Master Sergeant Clint Walker. Yeah. That's right. So Clint Walker's sort of playing the... the He's training the, the film version of Clint Walker, which is Clint Walker, who is also a drill instructor. Right. Well, the government... Because he is the toughest man alive. And, yeah. and I think yeah. that Leslie Apologies Nielsen's performance in Airplane was inspired <laughs> by Clint Walker. Oh, Clint yeah. Walker has yes. a great deal of fun spoofing his serious image in this movie he was having fun and when i spoke to him uh, the first time i spoke to him i asked him if he remembered making this film he did and he never got to see it and when i was a kid i heard they were making this film and i heard about all these stars that were going to be in it and i wanted to see this film and somehow it never came to my local theater that was like destroy all monsters for me now i got to see destroy all monsters when i was a kid i had to wait a long time <laughs> now the part of that movie where they became a rock band and destroy all monsters yeah well, the point is no the things didn't actually get a broad national theatrical release it was released in only a few markets and then went away and d disappeared yeah. It, because it's a product of its time, and it needs to be viewed that way uh, in order to be appreciated. It's very special because it is so rare. And there actually was a record album released yeah. on the studio's record label of the time, Warner Brothers Records, put out a Finks album that had songs recorded by the group, the songs that are in the film. It's quite a collector's item. I bet. They, they wanted this to be like Holy launching of a new a new uh, product, like like the monkeys. And I think that the monkeys' head, which was made before this, certainly may have inspired them to start working on this project. But the record company, someone involved with Warner Brothers Records, was also involved with the production of this film. So I think there was a lot of change going on at the time, and it was probably conceived as some kind of a... Uh, a unification of music and film, and uh, it didn't quite work out to be. What was what, the '70s word for synergy? Uh, Dynamic relativism. I guess it was synergy. Hey man, yes. we spent two and a half years yes. putting the film back together with our post-production team. We had to. The film Hats elements, off to that team. Uh, the, the, literally, the this came from the camera negative being located in our vaults, uh, assembled, remastered. 
widescreen, looks great, and both this, colors. This version is longer than, than what might have played on TVs in Europe. There were right. some. We think there were some European television broadcasts because we have tapes in foreign languages, but there was nothing in English until we created. So, this if you're a there. foreign listener who's watched the Finks on television, Hell please, so. please yeah. send us a letter about please. your experience with the Finks. We will read it on air please. and send you something cool. Yeah. Well, speaking of letters, yeah, let's wrap up that segment and move to our next one. Dan, we have something special today. Dan showed us this, and we determined that this would be our letter today. His mother sent him a wonderful message about it's the podcast. Embarrassing me on the air going to be a regular yes. feature. Okay, this is from your mom. Your mom starts out uh, with a little family business and then gets to this paragraph. You all sound as if you're having the most. Hey, that wonderful is not how my mother talks. <laughs> You can't read my mother with respect. You all sound Thank as you. if you're having the most wonderful time and enjoying yourselves so much. I think you could become the movie version of Car Talk, which is going off the air, sad to say. There are only two of them, and there are three of you, and you manage, maybe by good editing, but I think it's more due to your rapport. Not to be confusing by interjections or interruptions. I think it is quite remarkable. And another thing, better than Car Talk... You don't overdo the laughter. In fact, your, and I mean you in particular, Dan, your laughter is infectious, and I may be the mother here, I don't know, but I think I am objective, and a real contribution because it sounds so genuine. And it is. <laughs> what, what are we sending your mom? Oh, that's a good question. A uh, lounge suite. <laughs> I will dig in the archives. Yeah, so this is a good opportunity to thank the tireless efforts of our sound engineer. Yeah, yes, absolutely. We, uh, they've told us that we have a tendency to ramble. I don't believe it. If the show sounds succinct and peppy, it's all because of Stefan. <laughs> I think maybe what we should do is have a, a viewer vote. We should have the unedited version of our podcast, like the 58-minute version against the I think for our like 100th episode, we should just have Stefan in the booth with us, and he can recount his experiences. <laughs> we, we can have him uh, give us his favorite moments. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know what you were talking about, so I cut it. <laughs> Do we know what we're talking about, George? Not right now. I think so. Well, that's our letter. We had to resort to one from Dan's mom. But Thanks, yours mom. could be next week if you write to us. Okay. Sally Sterling's I'm going to give you the, the, the address right now. <laughs> it's Warner Archive Podcast B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California. Now I'm Clint Walker. 91522. Now say that zip code again like Clint would say it. 91522. There we go. Now it's baby Pac-Man. 91522. <laughs> there we go. Well, that wraps up our podcast for today, but we want to remind you that the Clark Gable, Gene Harlow, and Clint Walker epics are all waiting for you at warnerarchive.com, and we thank you for listening to the podcast. Make sure you look for our next podcast, and meanwhile, oh, wait, I am... Wait, wait. I, I just want to say... How about a little hint for next week? What's going to be on next week's podcast? See, if, if somebody's been listening. I don't know. What is going to be on next week's podcast? A Lady of the Street. Ah, good. That's a good hint. Della Street. Oh, really? That. Oh, and then you can wonder enough what, said, what, did, what did Della wear? Uh, Streetwear? That's right. So that means I get to talk about Ellen Jenkins next week. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Yet again. Another? So make sure you tune in for our next, if you can find a tuning button on your listening device. But please look for the next one our Archive Collection podcast. Meanwhile, I am George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. My mother's son. 
And we thank you for listening and look for the next Warner Archive Collection podcast.